Section eight of Old and New Masters by Robert Lind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter five Keats. Number one The Biography. Sir Sidney Colvin deserves praise for the noble architecture of the temple he has built in honor of Keats. His great book, John Keats, his life and poetry, his friends, critics, and after-fame, is not only a temple, indeed, but a museum. Sir Sidney has brought together here the whole of Keats's world, or at least all the relics of his world that the last of a band of great collectors has been able to recover, and in the result we can accompany Keats through the glad and sad and mad and bad hours of his short and marvelous life as we have never been able to before under the guidance of a single biographer. We are still left in the dark, it is true, as to Keats's race and descent. Whether Keats's father came to London from Cornwall or not, Sir Sidney has not been able to decide on the rather shaky evidence that has been put forward. If it should hereafter turn out that Keats was a Cornish man at one remove, Matthew Arnold's conjecture as to the Celtic element in him, as in other English poets, may revive in the general esteem. In the present state of our knowledge, however, we must be content to accept Keats as a Londoner without ancestors beyond the father who was head ostler at the sign of the Swan and Hoop, Finsbury Pavement, and married his master's daughter. It was at the stable at the Swan and Hoop not a public house, by the way, but a livery stable, that Keats was prematurely born at the end of October 1795. He was scarcely nine years old when his father was killed by a fall from a horse. He was only fourteen when his mother, who had remarried unhappily and then been separated from her husband, died, a victim of chronic rheumatism and consumption. It is from his mother that Keats seems to have inherited his impetuous and passionate nature. There is the evidence of a certain wholesale tea-dealer, the respectability of whose trade may have inclined him to censoriousness, to the effect that, both as a girl and a woman, she was a person of unbridled temperament, and that in her later years she fell into loose ways and was no credit to the family, that she had other qualities besides those mentioned by the tea-dealer is shown by the passionate affection that existed between her and her son john once as a young child when she was ordered to be kept quiet during an illness he is said to have insisted on keeping watch at her door with an old sword and allowing no one to go in as she lay dying he sat up whole nights with her in a great chair would suffer nobody to give her medicine or even cook her food but himself, and read novels to her in her intervals of ease. The Keats children were, fortunately, not left penniless. Their grandfather, the proprietor of the livery stable, had bequeathed a fortune of thirteen thousand pounds, a little of which was spent on sending Keats to a good school till the age of sixteen, and afterwards enabled him to attend Guy's Hospital as a medical student. It is almost impossible to credit the accepted story that he passed all his boyhood without making any attempt at writing poetry. He did not begin to write, says Sir Sidney Colvin, 
till he was near eighteen. If this is so, one feels all the more grateful to his old schoolfellow, Cowden Clark, who lent him The Fairy Queen, with a long list of other books, and in doing so presented him with the key that unlocked the unsuspected treasure of his genius. There is only one person, indeed, in all the Keats circle to whom one is more passionately grateful than to Cowden Clark, that is, Fanny Braun. Keats, no doubt, had labored to some purpose, occasionally to find purpose, with his genius before the autumn of 1818, when he met Fanny Braun for the first time. Nonetheless, had he died before that date, he would have been remembered in literature not as a marvelous original artist, but rather as one of those inheritors of unfulfilled renown, among whom Shelley surprisingly placed him. Fanny Braun may, or may not, have been the bad fairy of Keats as a man. She was unquestionably his good fairy as a poet. This is the only matter upon which one is seriously disposed to quarrel with Sir Sidney Colvin as a biographer. He does not emphasize, as he ought, the debt we are under to Fanny Braun as the intensifier of Keats's genius, the minx, as Keats irritably called her, who transformed him in a few months from a poet of still doubtful fame into a master and an immortal. The attachment, Sir Sidney thinks, was the misfortune for him, though he qualifies this by adding that so probably under the circumstances must any passion for a woman have been. Well, let us test this misfortune by its consequences. The meeting with Fanny took place, as I have said, in the autumn of 1818. During the winter Keats continued to write Hyperion, which he seems already to have begun. In January 1819 he wrote The Eve of St. Agnes. During the spring of that year he wrote The Ode to Psyche, The Ode on a Grecian Urn, The Ode to a Nightingale, and La Belle Dame Sans Merci. In the autumn he finished Lamia, and wrote The Ode to Autumn. To the same year belongs the second greatest of his sonnets, Bright Star, But I Were Steadfast As Thou Art. In other words, practically all the fine gold of Keats's work was produced in the months in which his passion for Fanny Braun was consuming him as with fire. His greatest poems we clearly owe to that heightened sense of beauty which resulted from his translation into a lover. It seems to me a treachery to Keats's memory to belittle a woman who was at least the occasion of such a passionate expenditure of genius. Sir Sidney Colvin does his best to be fair to Fanny, but his presentation of the story of Keats's love for her will, I am afraid, be regarded by the long line of disparagers as an endorsement of their blame. I can understand the dislike of Fanny Braun on the part of those who dislike Keats and all his works, but if we accept Keats and the Eve of St. Agnes, we had better be honest and also accept Fanny who inspired them. Keats, it must be remembered, was a sensualist. His poems belong to the literature of the higher sensualism. They reveal him as a man not altogether free from the vulgarities of sensualism, as well as one who was able to transmute it into perfect literature. He seems to have admired women vulgarly, 
as creatures whose hands were waiting to be squeezed, rather than as equal human beings, the eminent exception to this being his sister-in-law, Georgiana. His famous declaration of the independence of them, that he would rather give them a sugar-plum than his time, was essentially a cynicism in the exhausted Don Juan mood. Hence, Keats was almost doomed to fall in love with provocation, rather than with what the Victorians called soul. His destiny was not to be a happy lover, but the slave of a minx. It was not a slavery without dignity, however. It had the dignity of tragedy. Sir Sidney Colvin regrets that the love-letters of Keats to Fanny were ever published. It would be as reasonable, in my opinion, to regret the publication of La Belle Dame Sans Merci. La Belle Dame Sans Merci says in literature merely what the love-letters say in autobiography. The love-letters, indeed, like the poem, affect us as great literature does. They unquestionably take us down into the depths of suffering, those depths in which tortured souls cry out almost inarticulately in their anguish the torture of the dying lover as he sails for Italy and leaves Fanny, never to see her again, has almost no counterpart in biographical literature. The thought of leaving Miss Braun, he writes to Brown from Yarmouth, is beyond everything horrible the sense of darkness coming over me. I eternally see her figure eternally vanishing. And when he reaches Naples, he writes to the same friend, I can bear to die. I cannot bear to leave her. Oh, God, 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 everything that I have in my trunks that reminds me of her goes through me like a spear. The silk lining she put in my traveling cap scalds my head. My imagination is horribly vivid about her. I see her. I hear her. Oh, that I could be buried near where she lives. I am afraid to write to her. To receive a letter from her. To see her handwriting would break my heart. Even to hear of her, anyhow, to see her name written would be more than I can bear. Sir Sidney Colvin does not attempt to hide Keats's love story away in a corner. Where he goes wrong, it seems to me, is in his failure to realize that this love story was the making of Keats as a man of genius. Had Sir Sidney fully grasped the part played by Fanny Braun as, for good or evil, the presiding genius of Keats as a poet, he would, I fancy, have found a different explanation of the changes introduced in the latter version of La Belle Dame Sans Merci. Sir Sidney is all in favor, and there is something to be said for his preference of the earlier version, which begins, Oh, what can ail thee, knight at arms, alone and palely loitering? But he does not perceive the reasons that led Keats to alter this in the version he published in Lee Hunt's Indicator, to, Ah, what can ail thee, wretched white, and so on. Sir Sidney thinks that this and other changes, which are all in the direction of the slipshod and the commonplace, were made on Hunt's suggestion, and that Keats acquiesced from fatigue or indifference. 
to accuse Hunt of wishing to alter knight-at-arms to wretched white seems to me unwarrantable guessing. Surely a much more likely explanation is that Keats, who in this poem wrote his own biography as an unfortunate lover, came in a realistic mood to dislike knight-at-arms as a too romantic image of himself. He decided, I conjecture, that wretched white was a description nearer the bitter truth, hence his emendation. The other alterations also seem to me to belong to Keats rather than to Hunt. This does not mean that the knight-at-arms version is not also beautiful, but, in spite of this, I trust the delegates of the Oxford University Press will not listen to Sir Sidney Colvin's appeal to banish the later version from their editions of Keats. Every edition of Keats ought to contain both versions, just as it ought to contain both versions of Hyperion. Nothing that I have written will be regarded, I trust, as deprecating the essential excellence, power, and, in its scholarly way, even the greatness of Sir Sidney Colvin's book. But a certain false emphasis here and there, an intelligible prejudice in favor of believing what is good of his subject, has left his book almost too ready to the hand of those who cannot love a man of genius without desiring to respectabilize him. Sir Sidney sees clearly enough the double nature of Keats, his fiery courage, shown in his love of fighting as a schoolboy, his generosity, his virtue of the heart, on the other hand, and his luxurious love of beauty, his tremulous and swooning sensitiveness in the presence of nature and women, his morbidness, his mawkishness, his fascination as by serpents, on the other. But in the resultant portrait it is a too respectable and virile Keats that emerges. Keats was more virile as a man than is generally understood. He does not owe his immortality to his virility, however. He owes it to his servitude to golden images, to his citizenship of the world of the senses, to his bondage to physical love. Had he lived longer, he might have invaded other worlds. His recasting of Hyperion opens with a cry of distrust in the artist who is content to live in the little world of his art. His very revulsion against the English of Milton was the revulsion against the dead language of formal beauty. But it is in formal beauty, the formal beauty especially of the Ode on a Grecian Urn, which has never been surpassed in literature, that his own achievement lies. He is great among the pagans, not among the prophets. Unless we keep this clearly in mind, our praise of him will not be appreciated. It will be but a sounding funeral speech instead of communion with a lovely and broken spirit, the greatest boast of whose life was, I have loved the principle of beauty in all things. End of section 8 Read by Vicki Rands